along with the co-creator, co-conspirator, co-brother of this joint, Money Nathan from North Carolina. What's up, everybody? As you can see, I'm in my remote studio. This is uh, off destination. Deployed location. We don't Absolutely. even. Yeah, Undisclosed. Exactly. Yeah, undis <laughs> mm -hmm. Next up, uh, looking, looking great uh, this afternoon and looking very ready to get into some Bigfoot and UAP talk, our guest says. So, you know, we're going to. We're going to follow up with what he wants to do because he is the guest of honor. Hello, Kevin. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you guys? I'm great. Great to be here at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Glad, you, yes. glad you made it at start time. Yeah, that's good. No traffic today. <laughs> UAP, UAP experiencers ain't playing no games. Good morning, Steph. What's up? I'm also on a classified um, location on some Ooh. planet. You you I guys like can you, you can choose. That's go right. watch Star night technology. sky uh, go watch night sky on amazon prime you'll see where steph is no hints yes there. and now yes. let's bring it <laughs> let's bring it up for our very special guest uh this brother right here we've been after for a long time he's somebody we earmarked i think me i think he was on your initial list nathan that we made is somebody we wanted to have on and we just had it to get we just had to get good enough and, and lucky enough to be able to connect with people to get this brother on uh, he is a researcher. He's digging into anthropology, ufology, Bigfootology, and even musicology, I suspect. Um, and he also started this thing uh, with a couple other brothers named MJ Benias and um, uh, Lieutenant Tim McMillan called The Debrief. And guess what? The credit card don't come out his pocket to make it happen. So party people, <laughs> put them hands together for brother Micah Hayes! Hello, you man. sexy denizens of Earth and other space-time locales. <laughs> no. How's it going? Yes. What's up? Welcome. <laughs> it's good to see you guys. Really good to see you. In fact, it's also good to be here and good to be seen. Am I coming through clearly? Yes. Uh, clear, uh, brother. You know Perfect. what? It, it reminds me of the symposium. I'm like, damn, man. He Not only does he sound good, he looks good. The only thing I could pick out is where the sideburns. I'm like, the sideburns are gone, man. He, he speaks. Yeah. <laughs> I love yeah, you know, I, used to, I, used to, I used to sport those. That's the problem, though, when you're time traveling, you know, you don't necessarily keep up with all the trends. And a young lady said to me, oh, sideburns. Yeah, that's really 2010. And I said, is it? No. Wait. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> off with them. Off they go. <laughs> to the chopping block. <laughs> Form follows function. OK, fine. Um, so anyway, it is it's an honor to have you, Micah. Really, we, we've been chasing you since the very, very beginning. And um it's it's surreal, you know, to have you on. I think we have, uh, you know, four fanboys, and if Deb was here, it'd be five uh, uh, gender neutral fanboys of Boys? you. So, uh, <laughs> huh? Gender neutral, gender. Yeah. Oh, oh Roger that, Roger Ir that. Irrespective okay. of gender. <laughs> so, uh, 
So, Mike, uh, I, I wanted to be Bigfoot heavy, but like you said, uh, when we were backstage, absolutely, if we want to entertain aspects of the phenomenon, we'd be remiss if we didn't do that with so much going on and people that are in the community speaking about uh, that there are big things about to happen. I don't know what those things are, but Dr. Gary Nolan alluded it to us, uh, alluded to it with us the other night on air, as well as other friends in the community who are far more connected than we are. Uh Regarding Bigfoot, uh, a topic that I'm fascinated with that these guys get to watch me on video in Northwest Florida, traipsing around the woods with my dog, calling out to Bigfoot <laughs> to come and say hello, which you may or may not endorse that, <laughs> that, method, that methodology, <laughs> but I want to meet up with them. Um, please, if you would, like put into context like how pervasive of this species is not only in the United States, but uh, other countries who have a species that you would associate with the one that we know. Okay, well, that's a good question. Um, if I may, I'll, I'll give a bit of background first. Please. Um, you know, we live in a very unusual world. Uh, I think the most unusual thing about planet Earth is maybe uh, humans and humans' attitudes toward things. Um, it's often cited, and uh, it, it's really worthy of mention right now, the work of the great philosopher of science, Thomas Kuhn, um, who established the, and this is important, I mean, seminal work in truth, that scientific breakthroughs occur in terms of paradigms, where essentially there's a great discovery. There are, you know, sometimes entire disciplines of science that are built around the discovery. And then people work within that field or discipline and they, and they expand until they get to the edges, so to speak. And as you begin to push on the edges and you begin to get the idea that there may be something beyond that paradigm, um, people usually behave in one of two ways. The more prevalent attitude is we've reached the edge, the boundary. We know just about everything that there is to know. Great example in modern physics, for example, is essentially uh, those things in keeping with uh, general relativity is outlined by the great Albert Einstein. Einstein. And before Einstein and his, you know, innovative thinking about gravity and the nature of space, time and the cosmos and what ties it all together, uh, which again, mathematically presented a number of predictions, which have continued to be confirmed like gravity waves in recent years. Um, we, before that, of course, had a Newtonian worldview where Sir Isaac Newton had done probably the best in terms of nailing down how we think the mechanics of the universe work. And so every time one paradigm gets to a point where somebody new comes along and it really expands the way we think, people continue to kind of operate, but within that paradigm. And when Einstein initially uh, presented his revolutionary theories about general relativity, there was at one point a uh, petition that was signed by some 100 mathematicians and physicists who were all standing up and speaking out in, uh, in opposition to this radical idea. And Einstein famously said, and I'm paraphrasing, that, listen, 100 scientists and mathematicians signing a petition doesn't refute the idea. If you disagree with me, refute you know, my hypothesis, show me the error in my calculations in the mathematics, right? And no one was ever able to. And that's the whole point. Just because you disagree with an idea doesn't mean that if there are facts that support it, that it's wrong. When those facts remain true over opinions, ideas, belief systems, and paradigms, that's how science advances. With regard to two subjects, we're going to talk a lot about uh, the anthropological phenomenon that I call uh, the search for relict hominoids, but these are popularly known as Sasquatch, Yeti, Yeren, Alma, and other names throughout the world. Um, really, 
and, and this going back to the earlier statement, I mean, we live in a very strange world. And the strangest thing about it to me is that even when humans are aware of phenomena and able to observe them, we're very slow to warm up to the idea that, hey, there's a there there. We should study this. How does science you know, reconcile with this? And really, it's very important to just note here that with all the things we're seeing going on with UAP in recent years, I mean, there is not like this sudden kind of phenomena that just erupted into our uh, there's some sort of a Siri speaking in the background, by the way. So you got to love that when you say something and, and then the computers start talking back to you. This is why I don't trust those machines just yet. Uh, but that said, um, when we uh, when we look at UAP, it's not like this is something that just you know came into existence out of nowhere, out of you know the ether. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of our intelligence officials right now, kind of do treat it like that. They they say you know at least as recently as 2004. Anomalous aerospace vehicles or some other kind of phenomena have been observed by members of our military. And so we're going to look at this phenomenon. And we're going to look at the best data we have and what we've collected with the most advanced sensory equipment. I look at things very differently from that. My fundamental approach is, hey, listen, you know, to fully understand anything, you have to understand its history. Right. This is one of the arguments that skeptics often and, you know, it would be a fair argument if I didn't think that it was inaccurate. But a fair argument would be that, hey, a phenomena doesn't just spring into existence out of nowhere. And this is what they say about Sasquatch. You know, in the 1950s, people start claiming they're seeing footprints out there in Bluff Creek, California. There were some indigenous American legends before that, but we're not sure they're really the same thing. A phenomena doesn't just erupt into your midst. Well, people can try and make claims like that. People have tried to say the same thing about UAP. You know, these things just spring into existence in 1947. Maybe there were some sightings of some things, Foo Fighters, Ghost Rockets, you know, in the 1940s during the war. I would say, no, no, if you actually do your due diligence, if you go back and you look at the history, there's a much deeper history of recorded phenomena that is a good match, but perhaps filtered through a different cultural lens and the, and the lens of, of you know, contemporaneity, you know, going back to the 1930s or the 20s or the teens. You know, and people in every different era describe things that they experience differently. We, of course, in our modern post-space age, right, where we've sent people to the moon, we've sent probes beyond our solar system. We have no problem thinking in terms of spacecraft. In the 1890s, you know, when people were seeing strange lights that were occurring over parts of California, they called them airships, right? But at that time, we didn't have any heavier than air craft that were flying. Kitty Hawk hadn't happened yet. The Wright brothers hadn't put a plane in the sky. Um, the point I want to try and make here is that there probably is a history, but one of the issues that we face is understanding outside of our modern frame of reference what to look for when we go back in time. And so I've tried to impress upon people I've spoken with in recent years who have looked at the UAP issue very seriously. And they're like, what do you think about Nimitz? And I'm like, I think it's great. It's a fascinating case. What do you think about the cases that have for more than a century been piling up? And frankly, maybe centuries before that. Uh, how do we how do we look for the best data that is representative of that possibility that UAP has been something that is a time honored tradition of humans observing things in the sky that they can't identify without ascribing some sort of you know ideas to what they are where they're from who or what may be behind them right. but again I jumping back over to Sasquatch and then I promise I'll stop running my mouth unless you guys ask a question no, no please it's go ahead. Yeah. but it's important I think to establish these these you know these kind of modes of thinking in terms of framing each of these narratives historically. Suddenly, after 2017, what we really began to see happen with the UAP topic was that not only were military officials revealed to have been collecting information about this and studying it, and when this came to the attention of the public through the Fourth Estate, notably that paper of record, the old gray lady, the New York Times, 
this article by you know Kane Blumenthal and Cooper that was published uh, that brought attention to the uh, ATIP program, as it's known, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. And again, that being a unclassified nickname from a previous program, OSAP, but then was later borrowed for an informal Pentagon uh, um, uh, initiative. We won't get into the weeds on it. The point is, the government was looking at UAP. Uh, the press thought there was a story here. The American public saw it and said, wow, this is just groundbreaking. It was a big surprise to a lot of people, old guard UFO people who were aware already of the civilian and government data. It's been collected for decades. They're like, see, this is more of what we knew was going on, but which the government didn't admit to. And through popular demand, we have now in recent days seen lawmakers getting into the game and saying, okay, the people want to know, they have a right to know, we as representatives of those people should do everything in our power to try and bring more transparency to these issues. And it's led to the establishment in 2020 of the UAP task force. There was an interagency task force already in operation before that, but it was given a formal name mm-hmm. and it was made public. Um, then, of course, after that, we had the establishment of the Airborne Object Identification Management and Synchronization Group under the DOD. <laughs> most memorable name ever. And that name now has been changed for reasons that are pretty obvious, I think. And I think that what we have now is the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. I think that's the latest name that we've given to it. And that was just announced in recent days. Uh, My personal opinion is, of course, these less than memorable names are with the intent of people not being able to remember or pronounce them. But, you know, that all that said, I'm just happy that there are efforts now Uh, through legislation, uh, particularly aimed at not only collecting information, but at least where it is applicable and where it is not in conflict with national security interests, that the American people will be told about this phenomenon. But again, the point here is that, well, okay, cool. This is a big development for a lot of people and a new thing. UFOs weren't real until all of a sudden a few years ago when the government started taking it seriously. Now they're, they're here, they're real. People are studying it. A lot of skeptics maintain doesn't matter what the government says, there's nothing to see here. You see these same sorts of instances of paradigmic thinking that I'm talking about. But wherever people may sit on the, spe- the spectrum of belief or skepticism, the broader public narrative here, here seems to be that there has been a phenomenon. But it's kind of gone through a glass ceiling moment. And as it's broken through that, we're seeing one of these paradigm shifts in the very literal sense. Now, I would contend that there are other subjects that, like UFOs and UAP, long have been worthy of. They, too, should be deserving of that kind of attention. And at this point now, I think we can, with that behind us, discuss how I think the relic hominoid concept may one day also prove to be a similar phenomena here on Earth, on this strange Earth, that is often ignored, but which is Less difficult, I think, to accept than the idea of, for instance, a concept like alien and visitation, and yet people seem paradoxically more uh, resistant to it. That is interesting. I already feel like we need to send you a check for that contribution right there. Nathan, well, all right, well, he'll disperse. Uh, but phenomenal. yeah, take it away. <laughs> yeah, Michael, say thank you for joining us, and uh, thank you, colleagues, as well, for the work that you guys have put into this uh, field. Uh, I think the debrief is, is just doing great, great work, and I love the multidisciplinary approach that you take to your reporting. So kudos to that. And of course, we always look forward to the next uh, uh, sort of late-breaking piece. I know there's always one in the wings, so we're excited to see what's coming up. Um, I think your 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 kind of background there was really helpful, and it's weird because it's sort of synchronistic to what I was going to ask you, and that is that there is, uh, if you look at the sort of history of scientific discovery, right, uh, mm-hmm. there are discoveries which precede 
the just the current sort of understanding, the current paradigms that we operate within. You can't you can't go from point A to point Z without going through B, C, D, E, et cetera. Right. So I, I wonder what your sort of feeling, your intuition is about where we are kind of in that journey to where we probably need to be in order to really understand the kind of scope, the complexity of various phenomena that, that just happen to exist. Do, we, do you think that we are, that we have filled in the right gaps at this point in our, in our models and our paradigms to be able to really get our arms around exactly whatever this happens to be? Or do you think we have several stepping stones left to go? I think we do have several stepping stones, Nathan. And, uh, and really quickly, by the way, you're in North Carolina? I am. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Well, actually, we could get to it now. So we can get, to, you mentioning, <laughs> we can get to it right now. I remember you mentioning on a show that you might be living near Brown Mountain. Is that right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm uh, I'm a little bit west of there. Uh, ah, okay. Yeah. So uh, we may, if you're if you're in the area, maybe we should grab a beer sometime. Oh, we will definitely do that. And in fact, sometime if I'm doing a viewing down at Brown Mountain, you're welcome just to tag along. I, I do know of a group of researchers and fellow podcasters who intend to go down there. And so, but we can come back around and talk about that later. I just wanted to clarify that. So, uh, yeah, good. Always good to know a local. That said, yes. let, um, let me let me this, jump in real. Let me jump in sure. real quick. So, Exoacademian, if you're familiar with him, Micah and Nathan both uh, have met through our medium of, of, well, we had him on the show and found out that he lived in the Blue Ridge Mountain area oh. also, you know, near Asheville. Like, and so they started getting together uh, bi-weekly for either a beer or coffee, depending upon the time of day. And from, from the moment that started, we're like, oh my God, how awesome would it be to have Micah Hanks join in on that? And so, <laughs> so yeah. Yep. Awesome. There you go. I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. That's okay. I, I would be delighted. Always up for a beer or a coffee. And I'd do almost either. Well, actually, I would do um, almost any time of day, either of those, if it weren't for a couple of factors. One being that coffee late in the day uh, will prevent me from sleeping. But then again, you know, my mind's usually racing and I don't sleep that well anyway. Uh, but, you know, coming back to Nathan's question again, you know, do, are, do we have some stepping stones yet to, to, uh, to uh, traverse? And I do think we do. I'm, I'll start again with UAP. And I think that throughout this conversation, I'll probably jump back and forth between the topics because I see that there are some parallels. And when people often ask me, what do you think the connection between Bigfoot, right? Uh, using the popular colloquial term here in America and, uh, and, and UAP or UFOs is, uh, do you think that these things are the similar phenomena? Do they both stem from some unified theory of the paranormal? No, I, I don't think so. I think they're entirely separate. Uh, I have a lot of colleagues and friends who would argue uh, otherwise. Um, if I were shown good evidence of that, you know, that, that would be wonderful. Are there ways that one might collect that evidence? Sure, probably. How would you do it? I don't know. The problem seems to be that um, a lot of the kinds of discussions that we see when people try to kind of combine phenomena is that when you, when you say that one thing is strange and anomalous and another thing is strange and anomalous, therefore they must be related, um, you know, that's, that's kind of like saying, well, I don't know, I could give you all kinds of different, uh, uh, you know, examples, but I think that the primary point is, is that two negatives don't equal a positive. Two things that may seem anomalous, uh, if you if you say that, well, they're, they're both paranormal and they're therefore connected, that doesn't necessarily help us resolve either by saying they're connected and they're, they're part of the same weirdness. Now, they may be. The, the approach I prefer to take, however, is let's look at each phenomena individually and sometimes even subsets of phenomena within what might be considered a single discipline, right? Um, and let's look at those things individually so that we don't um, find ourselves leading with presumptions that we make about these things due to their connection purportedly 
allegedly to other phenomena. So, um, but I do think that it's important in terms of analyzing any topic that you make comparisons and it's really great. I find it's really useful when we're talking about the relic hominoid thing or Sasquatch to say, look at what's happening with UFOs right now and how we have gotten to this point of at least public recognition. Now, how could we do that with another topic like Sasquatch? So again, to begin with UFOs and to point out some of the stepping stones that we have, we've made our way to, but that probably await us ahead as well. We have to really take into consideration that although cultural opinions about UFOs in various swaths of the public have always been very prone toward thinking that, hey, there is something to this, whatever it may be. Now we're also to a point where, I mean, lawmakers are actively trying to legislate and try and uh, obtain information that they believe government may already have. We do know that whatever the government may be hiding, and again, that's not an impossibility. There's a very good chance that there's data. I've strongly suspect that there's quite a bit that the governments have collected about UAP that may not you know, give us a full picture of what it is, where it's from, what it represents to humanity or otherwise, but it definitely probably is more than the public has access to. Um, but what we also see is an active effort on part of the DOD with the establishment of groups like AIMSOG and the more recent AARO uh, its predecessor, the UAP task force, they're actively collecting right now and they're trying to encourage uh, members of the military to come forward and talk about things that in the past, due to stigmas that prevailed against this subject, they didn't feel like they could talk about. And many members of the military still will not come out and talk about things. Great example, um, Dave Sex Fravor, right? And that was his nickname, his call name, right? When he was in the, in the uh, Air Force. Dave Fravor, the, the famous pilot who uh, had famously attempted to you know, fly down, take a closer look at this so-called Tic Tac during the 2004 Nimitz incident. Fravor has always been public about that story. <clears throat> he had told it to friends, you know, while having a beer. Uh, his buddy Paco Chirichi had written an article about it at the Fighter Sweep website, like way back in like 2015, I think. That story had been out in the wild and online for years, as had been the footage that was ca uh, captured by then, I think he held lieutenant rank, but now he's Commander Chad Underwood. Um, that video had literally been leaked. And the reason why nobody took any disciplinary action about the leak of that video is because, oh, well, you know, it's not classified. I sh that should tell you a lot about the way that the military approaches some of this UFO data. Well, we got a video of something. What is it? Well, we don't know. So it's not classified. And that video had been out in the wild for a number of years. But Alex Dietrich, uh, the other lead pilot, I think that um, Fravor, Dietrich's weapon systems officer, maybe at some point also uh, uh, Fravor's weapon systems officer, they had had less issue talking about it, but Alex Dietrich did not want publicly to be associated with that. Uh, and she didn't come out openly, although a few people, journalists like myself, of course, knew her name. Many people did. Um, she didn't come out until the famous 60 Minutes program on UAP that came uh, came out, I guess, what was it a little more than a year ago, right? Um these stigmas are what I think in a lot of ways prevent uh, progress and, and the military recognizes that. And so it's more important, I think, that they are working to overcome those stigmas, even that it is in some ways that they are now collecting data openly about this, even if they don't share everything that they're open about collecting. Um, now, that is important in the context of looking at something like Sasquatch, because if you say today, any of us walk into a bar, right? What do you do for a living? Well, I'm a researcher. What do you research? Well, uh, you know, strange stuff. Okay, now this conversation could go one of two ways. If I say <laughs> I'm really interested in the way that the military is studying unidentified aerial phenomena, right now in our cultural environment, a lot of people would be like this. Oh, wow, that's fascinating. Really, huh? Have you spoken with officials? Do you know anything? 
uh, you know, have you seen one yourself? But if on the other hand, we're sitting down, we're having that beer, Nathan and I are in a bar somewhere. And what is, what did you uh, do, Mr. Hanks? And I said, well, I study uh, the idea that uh, there is a large undiscovered primate that walks on two legs that lives right here in North America and that people have claimed to see these, including government officials. Uh, which of those two ideas are people going to be more likely to laugh at? Think about that, you know? Um, Sasquatch is often immediately ascribed to the mythical, the mythical ape creature known as Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Um, whereas, again, taking a couple of objective steps back, you know, let's look at what UFOs might be, right? Again, a popular theory, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Okay, what if these things are ET and they're visiting Earth? I often point out to people, listen, guys, we have trained our telescopes on distant stars. We've now got the most advanced science uh, observatory out there at LaGrange Point to the James Webb Space Telescope, peering out to the boundaries of our universe and back in time, 13.5 billion years. And we have not yet found any conclusive evidence of intelligent life anywhere, anywhere out there. Now, we have found you know, some interesting things that are suggestive of habitable regions. We've even found these enigmatic fast radio bursts and things that some interpret as being evidence of beacons or some kind of a optical kind of uh, SETI being directed outward toward us as opposed to uh, the ones that we, the, the messages that we might send, which actually would entail METI, not SETI, but that's a different conversation. You know, again, we haven't found anything that we can conclusively say, well, we know where the intelligence is coming from, right? And therefore, Many astronomers would maintain, well, we don't have evidence of extraterrestrials. Now, to me, that's not the only evidence or lack thereof that should be considered, right? And I think UFO proponents would argue the same. But the point I'm trying to make is that we don't have any kind of scientific data really as yet that we know of that corroborates the claims of those experiencers who have said, hey, look, you know, there's a phenomenon. We don't have to look through telescopes. It's right here on Earth. It's operating within our atmosphere and hundreds, thousands, maybe, you know, tens of thousands of people have experiences with this pretty frequently. Um, that really requires a lot of, of uh, speculation to draw those conclusions, right? Um, even though it may be likely, we don't have evidence that supports life from other worlds coming here. Whereas, paradoxically, Sasquatch, okay, cool, walks upright just like humans, does not look unlike other higher primates like gorillas. Uh, there are evidences of creatures in the paleoanthropological record that existed as recently as the last uh, geological epoch, the Pleistocene, i.e. the Ice Age, that resemble what people say Sasquatch looks like, those who claim to have seen it. So uh, not only is Sasquatch something that could exist within the, the spectrum of life that we know to exist on Earth, past and present, um, but there are creatures there that are very like Sasquatch that are extant today. Well, but we know there are no primates in North America. Hello, look in the mirror, you know? So again, it's, it's funny how people's attitudes, they're so accepting of something that actually requires far more speculation than the concept that there may be a body of data that suggests that people have observed an undiscovered primate, not unlike humans, but seemingly more primitive, and that it might have existed at least until recently, perhaps still exists even today. Uh, that, to me, we might call the Sasquatch paradox. So, Micah, there's a couple things that you started off with that were very interesting to me. You know, as I said, I was listening to your show, and I think it was, is was it, it I don't think it was Mr. Bowman, it was Mr. Weatherly that told uh, the narrative of he and his friends that went into the woods, and to make a long story short, they were looking for a witch's house, which they found. And on their way out, <laughs> which unfortunately didn't happen before it got dark out, um, they did uh, have visual contact 
with uh, what they believe was was uh, Bigfoot or Sasquatch. And by the way, I love I find that name very enduring. So I actually love it. Um, I don't look at it as anything that's demeaning in any way to him. unless he told me that then I'd be like, well, I won't call you that anymore. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> um, or she if that were the case. But in any case, um, one of the interesting parallels was that uh, upon that sighting, uh, Mr. Weatherly heard that much like the when people interact with the phenomenon out in, in rural areas, no sound of crickets, no sound of wildlife. All of a sudden, the forest becomes silent. So that was one parallel that I found very interesting listening to that episode. And the other one is I would direct you to, and I know you're familiar with this, is the Navajo Ranger Jonathan Dover, who I know you're, I'm positive that you're familiar with what he has said. And he has said that he has tracked Sasquatch on several occasions uh, and that his favorite thing to track was humans uh, until he discovered uh, the, the tracks of Sasquatch. And he would find that on a, at least a couple of occasions, he would track it to an open field and then all of a sudden the tracks disappear. And that is the first time that led me to believe about the possible interdimensional nature where it could be here and then it could be elsewhere, you know, totally existing in our reality and walking around and, and living and then maybe going somewhere else. I had never even considered before that. So I'm curious what your, your take is on those two parallels. Sure. Okay. That's an interesting topic. Again, uh, you know, I'll, I'll make a reference to my good pal, Joshua Cutchin, who wrote a book, I believe called where the footprints end co-authored with uh, Jeremy uh, Renner. Um, and, and the whole premise of this, uh, this series of books is that there's something more to Sasquatch than a physical flesh and blood biological organism. Um, I've got a lot of colleagues who, who would say the same. Nick Redfern, who's another one of those researchers uh, who, like myself, um, can't stick with just one topic and, and is more than happy to, to kind of jump around. You know, you're either UAP or it's nothing, baby. No, no, no. You know, <laughs> I'm interested in all of it. And so is Nick. And, uh, and Nick has come back yeah. around to saying that <clears throat> there's something paranormal about Sasquatch. But now uh, to go in that direction, if you really talk with Nick about it, and Nick and I have spoken about this many times, he will tell you that when I say there's something paranormal about Sasquatch, it's that, and again, this is not me saying this, this is, this is uh, Nick Redfern. He says it's that there may be something about the behavior of this creature um, or other characteristics it possesses that we don't understand. Okay. In other words, paranormal could be defined as simply something that is scientifically as yet not understood, which really, I mean, most phenomena in nature begin as what we would call paranormal or supernatural until we, you know, study them, um, unravel those mysteries, understand them, and then they become natural, right? Um, so he says, essentially, there may be something that science does not yet understand that could account for the peculiar side of Sasquatch research. Um, now, I think that that's a reasonable prop of, uh, proposition. But, you know, then you if you go over and you speak to a, you know, a uh, anthropologist like to, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum of Idaho State University. And, I, and, and again, you know, I'm actually a little more on the Jeff Meldrum side of things. But Dr. Meldrum would say, well, you know, there may be other things that are known that could account for why Sasquatch is perceived as being paranormal. And we don't have to suppose that it possesses superpowers or characteristics that aren't understood within the scope of other biological organisms we've looked at to account for these things. So the next question would be, how do we do that? 
my colleague Matt Pruitt of the North American Wood Ape uh, Conservancy and also a great independent researcher in his own right and one of the best um, science-minded independent researchers, in my view, uh, who looks at this phenomenon. Matt has really done a lot of work looking at the way that indigenous traditional beliefs uh, view known creatures, even animals like grizzly bear, tigers, and lions. They are often viewed by people in various cultures as having mystical qualities. And he says it's very clear if you actually observe the behaviors of creatures like this as to why people would think that way. A tiger, for instance, is very large, uh, very colorful, and yet they are incredibly quiet. They are very good hunters. They wouldn't be able to survive if they weren't able to move very stealthily. But they are also creatures that you respect because you fear them. They will kill you. And so the important thing to remember here is that when you've got an animal that is both deadly but silent, it's colorful, uh, unlike any other animal in appearance, uh, but also capable of hiding. And it's very good at doing that and springing out of nowhere and capturing and killing its prey. It's very easy to see why people would describe an almost supernatural characteristic to it. But now coming back to what you described, and I've met some of the Navajo Rangers. They're fantastic guys. Uh, we've, we've had a conversation or two. Um, and, and some of those stories of tracking footprints to a location, and then they just kind of vanish. The earliest account I've seen of, of that kind of thing probably actually was um, in the recollections of Fred Beck. Fred Beck was one of the miners who during, uh, I guess it was the 1924 incident there at uh, Mount St. Helens, the so-called yeah, yeah. Ape Canyon incident. A group of miners went up there. They began to see these things that they called mountain devils. Um, again, for the people who say, historically speaking, that uh, no descriptions, and, th and there have been scholars, by the way, let me just make a brief aside here, scholars who have tried to argue that the giant ape-like appearance of Sasquatch that we all recognize today, that never appeared anywhere in print, they say, until 1958. And that, uh, and even then it was, it was only implied, but really the, the full hairy Sasquatch description really didn't show up until 19... The incident, I guess, happened in 1955, but it was after that that it made headlines. A, a hunter in Canada named William Rowe, he gave us a full, vivid description of an ape-like creature. And before that, probably none that describe a hairy ape-like Sasquatch. That's, that's nonsense. Um, and yet there have been scholarly skeptical analyses that lead with that, that ridiculously, absurdly incorrect statement. Now, um, if you go back and you read the newspaper accounts of the Mount St. Helens incident from 1924, they called them mountain devils because keep in mind, it wasn't until five years later with the publication of an article uh, called introducing British Columbia's hairy giants by William or, or J.W. Burns. I'm sorry. Um, J.W. Burns in McLean's magazine. That, that was the first to describe what he called Sasquatch. That was a Canadian publication. He was describing stories told to him by uh, members of the Chehalis tribe around the Harrison Lake area. And they, um, again, paradoxically, in contrast to those claims of skeptics, that article includes descriptions of creatures that had hair all over their body, like a bear, long arms that held, that hung down past their knee, very ape-like descriptions. So again, it's, it's such nonsense to see skeptics try to argue that, again, it's a convenient argument that fits their narrow-minded narrative that is an incorrect one if we look at the data. Um, but again, the 1924 incident, the newspaper reports also described seven and a half foot tall, you know, ape-like. They had hair all over their bodies. So that was clearly how these things were described. But many years later, and I point that out again because that both preceded Sasquatch and its appearance in print in 20, 1929 and, of course, the famous hoax, okay, by Ray Wallace in Bluff Creek, California in the, in the late 1950s that like flying saucers, 
which was a name created by the American press. Bigfoot was the name that was given by newspaper reporters to the creature alleged to exist in California in the 1950s. But again, going back to that 1924 incident, many years later, Fred Beck, one of the, the miners, uh, wrote a, a short pamphlet describing his experience. How, I think it was called How I Fought the Mountain Devils at uh, Mount St. Helens. And his son helped him write it. But at one point in that book, he describes that we had eerie things happen up there. Uh, you know, the prospecting team, when we go up there into the mountains, like we would on one occasion, we walked out onto a sandbar and there were these huge footprints, you know, but there was only, we'd see these footprints around is what they were saying, but they're out there in the middle of the sandbar. There was a single footprint like these footprints that they were used to seeing in the middle of the sandbar. And there weren't footprints actually leading out to it, or there weren't Ooh. footprints leading away from it. It's like this thing just kind of steps down and then it's gone. Right. So, so you do see those kinds of reports, but now I'll offer an interesting take on this. I've actually, I'm not a professional tracker by any means, but because I'm interested in search and rescue and uh, disappearances in our national parks, uh, the likes of which have been popularized in the, the books, which are very, very entertaining and, and interesting reading uh, written by David Politis, uh, Missing 411. Yes. Um, oh, we're going to talk about that. The hunters in, Nor in NorCal. Well, I love that. Let's, let's get into that because, yeah, I've, I've looked yeah. personally into some of those cases. And I differ a little from some of David's claim. Uh, I shouldn't call them claims. I should just call them his interpretations. He's careful not to draw uh, conclusions. And that, right. that bothers a lot of people about Politis, but I really respect it. I like that he is trying to be objective. He really works hard to try and be objective. But anyway, um, if if we look at uh, you know some of what appears in those books, you do hear people talking about going and before they went missing, they'll describe you know the silence that falls over everything, like you were describing. You know the crickets start stop chirping, birds stop you know singing, things like that. Um, I took an interest after reading those books in in man tracking. Essentially, you can track animals and animals generally follow very predictable behavior. And when I go out in the forests, it's not uncommon to find, you know, the spore of deer, um, you know, raccoon, possum, everything, birds, you know, wild turkey, humans too. But when you are in a search and rescue situation, uh, and I'd recommend a great book uh, by Al Taylor, one of the best, you know, man trackers to have written a book that, uh, and he, he, again, just look up Al or Albert Taylor, uh, man tracking, um, also, Ty Cunningham's um, Forensic Sporology, where he created a textbook on the science of how you track humans. Uh, these books will show you that often what people who are tracking an individual who maybe is lost in the forest, they're not looking for blatant, obvious footprints. They're looking for sign. Sign may be a pebble that's moved off place. It may be a broken twig or branch or a leaf. Mm -hmm. It may be where the dew is disturbed in the morning grass. And I would say that you know, if people claim that they have followed Sasquatch footprints and all of a sudden the footprints just end, I would say, well, the footprints ended, but did you keep looking for sign? Because half the time what you're looking for when you're following tracks is not going to be an obvious footprint. And so the skeptical side of my mind would say, if the footprints end, you start looking for sign. That's what a trained man tracker does. And by the way, the Navajo Rangers are far more experienced than I am. So again, to their credit, they know a bit more about this and they have much more field experience than I do. But I would still, in my experience, say, just because you don't see footprints does not to me lead me to the conclusion that the Sasquatch, you know, disappeared, flew off into the sky, like a bat squatch, different creature, you know, uh, there may Fair be enough. other explanations for that. Fair enough. And before I pass it to Kevin, I just want to, just want to ask you this. Um, it, if it's migrated from British Columbia down into like Washington state into Vancouver, is it possible that there's a passport photo somewhere that exists 
you know, that he that he has a passport and we could just find that in USCIS somewhere? That's a really good question. You know, again, yeah, you, you make a very important point. Because when I was younger, I used to think, you know, big Bigfoot, I mean, Bigfoot, you're only going to see them up there in like British Columbia, right? That's the only place that they are. Um, again, it, humans are believed, and this is going back into archaeology and anthropology, not related to Sasquatch, and I study a lot of that. Human migrations uh, into, the, into North America are believed to have come across the Bering Land Bridge sometime toward the end of the last ice age. The dispersal of humans throughout the continent would have come through that entry point. If we have a creature like Sasquatch that essentially occupies geographically a fairly contained area because it can subsist in that environment, you know, it doesn't have to move around a lot. That would explain why the concentration of sightings to this day remain up there. But I mean, you do, like you said, you have them all throughout the United States, but I guess in ancient times we didn't have passports. So maybe that's a novel yeah. new approach. <laughs> he, I'm sure he crossed the, the border legally. In my opinion, he seems like a very law abiding mammal in my, in my opinion. Seems Kevin, to me too. Ahead, yeah. <laughs> Kev. Well, hello, Mr. Micah Hanks. Nice hey, to Kev. meet you. <laughs> Good to see you. <laughs> uh, so one of the parallels um, I noticed between um the uh, Bigfoot phenomenon and the UFO phenomenon is that they both uh, they serve to confound science. It seems to confound our culture of reductionism. You know, Jungians would call it the archetype of the wild man. You yes. know, um, what interests me is that it's in our folklore. It's cross cultural. Um, but I'm wondering. I, I'm I'm looking at a lot of the studies. Is there any psychological studies going on that you know of in the psych in the Sasquatch field, like like the UFO phenomenon? Uh, yeah, I I do know of one more like a sociological study that's currently underway, and I participated in that study. Um, the study, as I understand it, uh, is uh, the, the results, of course, are not out yet. But a pair of researchers in the UK have been interviewing people who are Sasquatch researchers and, uh, and, and they've been looking at a number of different sociocultural components, which does have some to do with psychology, obviously social sciences one must take into consideration, you know, people's mindset and the things that form, you know, ideas and beliefs. Um, apart from that, I'm not sure of any, I will say this though. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting because in different areas of, of, uh, academia and scholarship, I mean, if there's a necessary, or rather I should say a necessity for study of subjects like this. Like we could look at UFOs and we could look at, uh, you know, why certain UFO shapes mirror a cultural idea or something like that. Right. Yeah. And, and, and again, and if, if I'm a social scientist, it's, it's going to be natural for me to do that kind of study. If I'm a psychologist, it's going to be, especially a Jungian psychologist and you make a really great point. Yes. You know, the savage or the, you know, the wild man, you know, this is an archetypal motif that we see throughout history. It emerges mm -hmm. in, in historic traditions. Um, someone like me who has gone all the way back to 200 BC and managed to find actually much earlier than that, tell you the truth, if we take into account um, uh, what, what I guess we could call epic portrayals of wild men or beastly humanoids like uh, Enkidu in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, we can maybe extend that to Grendel and Beowulf and some of these other popular epics, you know, from, from days past. Uh, yeah, sure. These are, these are traditional characters, stock characters, and Sasquatch has a place in all of that. But as a researcher who, again, there is no degree. You can't go to a university and get a degree in Sasquatchery or even in, in ufology or UAP studies. Um, the best we can do is we can have a, and maybe there will be degrees in that, in those fields <laughs> and disciplines at one point, but right now the best you could do is maybe get a degree in anthropology, physical anthropology, paleoanthropology, if you want to study Sasquatch, or you could get a degree maybe in, 
you know, astronomy um, or physics, if you want to study UFOs. And those are areas that are applicable to the study of these. But, you know, as a researcher who, uh, and a layman who doesn't have any of those degrees and someone who is merely looking at this phenomena, um, you know, I find it most useful, uh, even though I'm interested in that psychological side of things, I find it most useful to try and say, you know, what data do we have that either supports the existence of these creatures or these phenomena like UA UAP, or which refutes that idea. And in my view, um, and this comes back to the psychology thing, and I'll end right here, if, if, the, if the solution to either of these problems, UAP or Sasquatch, is completely that people just say silly crap and that they just make up silly stuff and that that's what this is all about. You know, um, we have a much more fascinating phenomenon on our hands. The <laughs> fact that, that people lie and, the, and they are so mistaken in things that they observe that to me would be a far more complex and difficult phenomena to understand than what the alternative seems to entail that people do see things they can't explain. And, and we have to try and account for those. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, Sasquatch's attempted therapy may have been his uh, his, his or her interaction with Mr. Moorhead and Mr. Barry, and they just didn't know that they were acting in that capacity, but it, it's possible. <laughs> Steph, you're up, buddy. <laughs> Micah, it's so good to see you. Thank you for your take on everything. I'm just, I'm having a blast listening to you guys. So I do have a question, though. I, I am a bit curious about the Sasquatch phenomenon. And being an experiencer myself, I have viewed a UAP. I'm still a skeptic. I'm still a realist. I still question everything. But, you know, I, I, I have physically seen a UAP. But um, as far as a Sasquatch, I, no, not, not as of yet. So as soon as I see one, then, then I'll have a different take on it. So being a realist, I want to know where... Sorry, I need to, to construct my question a bit better here. So you mentioned your interest in anthropology, right? And I'm trying to make this all um, make sense, right? So on Catalina, there have been findings of giants. So would that somehow be interconnected to the Sasquatch phenomenon? That to me would make sense where those two items would correlate. So maybe it is not a phenomenon. Maybe it is some real, you know, physical being, or I also came up with the idea of it being a phantom. So what are your thoughts on the giants correlating with the Bigfoot? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, in, in modern anthropology, there are certain topics that are, are uh, you know, you will be quickly viewed as persona non grata if you, if you entertain these ideas. A couple of examples are hyperdiffusionism, uh, i.e. the idea that there might have been a mother culture, you know, somewhere around Egypt or any other place in the world, maybe Atlantis, some would say, mm -hmm. and that people dispersed from that and throughout the world. And that explains why there are pyramids in Egypt and similar structures in Mesoamerica. You know, modern anthropology has no time for that. Now, um, another one of those ideas, and I'll just say, by the way, that, you know, even I, I don't ascribe to hyperdiffusionism, but I also don't place limits on the ingenuity of ancient peoples because people who existed 10,000, 20,000 years ago, I mean, they were homo sapiens sapiens just like us and they had all the same capabilities and they had the same degree of intelligence and ingenuity that we have. And yet there has long in anthropology been this, I should say more specifically in archeology span and in, in the United States, archeology span is considered a subdiscipline of anthropology 
along with um, linguistics and, 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 you know, with physical and cultural anthropology. In, in the UK and other parts of the world, sometimes it's almost viewed more, archaeology can fall almost closer to like art um, in the sense of interpretive analysis of, uh, of uh, you know, symbols and language, uh, i.e. found it, uh, in, in Egypt or someplace like that. Um, and, and a lot of that has to do with where archaeology grew out of, you know, the, the antiquarians, of the 19th century who began as collectors and then they start, you know, kind of taking what they collect and trying to categorize and classify. Archaeology is a fairly young science that grew out of that. I see a lot of science that's really making archaeology so innovative, especially in North American archaeology, which I have a lot of experience in. But the more I learn about it, the more I'm like, well, people a long time ago were brilliant. And yeah, they knew how to build boats. And yet for a long time, even though people in archaeology are warming up to that idea now, for the longest time, if you were to suppose that, you know, again, Homo erectus could have built a raft and, and sailed around, you know, one of our archaic human ancestors, people would laugh. They would have said, nope, impossible. But I'm going to tell you that people were able to get around. Now, yeah. to that point, uh, when we look up and down the California coast, there, there are some very interesting archaeological sites that are suggestive of things about uh, dispersal of humans, both Homo sapiens sapiens and other varieties, perhaps. And this actually does sort of get into the whole thing with Sasquatch. They are suggestive of something more than what current anthropological thinking uh, would allow. And when we talked about earlier paradigms in science, right? And when you break a paradigm and then you have this new knowledge, if we go back to the early 1900s, uh, Aleas Herdlichka, who was the head anthropologist at the National Museum, which became the Smithsonian, Herdlichka um, was trying to drive home the idea that humans didn't get here until about maybe 3,000 years ago. There was no evidence of humans in North America in the Ice Age. Um, and anything that fell outside of that hypothesis, he wanted to throw that out. <laughs> and then at Folsom, New Mexico, we found unambiguous evidence of lithic points, projectile points, beautiful, yep. incre yep. incredibly sophisticated projectile points in situ alongside extinct megafauna that are known to have existed during the Ice Age by scientists. Yeah, and so, so this was what led to the establishment of the Folsom culture. Then a similar discovery was made just a few years ago at uh, Clovis, New Mexico, which pushed that boundary back even further to around twelve to 13,000 years ago. Best we know, Herdlichka went to his grave and never accepted that there were people here that early. Well, again, we could look at all these different paradigms that have broken and the people who held out and still wouldn't believe it. There are still people today who try to argue that there's really not good evidence of pre-Clovis or earlier than Clovis, and that despite archaeological evidence at sites like Galt in Texas that pushes back you know, the time scale to around 20,000 years ago or more for human entry. But now to the point that you asked about giants and things like this, Naturally, um, looking back at the old Bureau of Ethnology reports in the Smithsonian's records, uh, I, I'm aware of and have, have looked at a lot of those accounts of large human skeletal remains that have been recovered. And especially when I was younger, I was kind of interested in them. Something I was not aware of was how contentious that topic is. And that's why I give you this long you know, preamble here about uh, paradigms and also about um, about the, the resistance to ideas, certain ideas in anthropology, because giants are one of them. Uh, what I didn't know was that there are a lot of, I guess what you'd call fringe theorists, and I'm not using that as a pejorative, but they would say there's a lost race of giants that inhabited the entire Americas, and, you know, and these are the same thing as the Nephilim that we read about in the Bible. Okay, well, 
that's fine. People can believe what they want to. I, I wasn't aware that that was a contentious issue in archaeology. Meanwhile, I'm looking at actual reports, documentation that describes large human remains. And I'm like, okay, hmm, that's interesting. What might this represent? Uh, for a short time, because I took interest in those, people began calling me a giantologist and <laughs> things like this. And I'm like, I'm not a, I don't care. These look like large human remains to me. Um, what can we discern about them? And, and privately, this is fascinating. I mean, there were people scholars, uh, people in the aerospace industry, people you'd be very surprised who shared that interest and who we would look into this and we would communicate about it. Mm -hmm. um, the, the known large human remains on record uh, all seem to be in, you know, unequivocally human, but they possess different kinds of interesting characteristics. Some uh, possess macrocephalic uh, features, a large mm -hmm. skull, um, but, but disproportionately large to the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. Some possess what are obviously acromegalic features, again, a pronounced jaw, uh, spacing between the teeth, um, other characteristics that are indicative of a uh, growth hormone disorder that would have led to gigantism. The Catalina story is interesting because we have uh, several instances of human remains that were uh, all, as I understand it, uh, recovered in, in uh, a, a single burial complex that were some of them taller than seven feet. And I've actually seen some photographs from those excavations. But then again, you know, if we go watch a basketball game today, there are a lot of basketball <laughs> yeah. players who are taller than seven feet. Yeah. And so it's fascinating because, sure, at that time in history, especially when Europeans who arrived here and they were very malnourished, ate mostly meat, they arrive, for instance, on the eastern coast of the United States and they meet an indigenous group like the Seminole who are you know, largely subsisting on um, shellfish and things out there on the coastal regions, but they're also, you know, having uh, a more diverse diet. They meet the Seminole and they're like, wow, you know, six, seven feet tall, that's not uncommon among these people. They're giants. You know, <laughs> me, there, there's a really good case to be made that it was a perception problem, not an actual instance of real giants. But, Steph, yeah. back to your point, is there some sort of connection with Sasquatch here? Another thing I've looked into that's interesting to me is anomalous uh, remains that are found in parts of North America. There's not a lot of this, but there are definitely some cases where um, during archaeological excavations and also surface finds, uh, th there have been anomalous fossil or uh, or non-fossilized remains of, of human, uh, presumably, types that, that are not very easily recognized. And, and you can see where this is kind of going, at least to one or two mm -hmm. possibilities. One, were there other kinds of hominins that might have made their way into North America other than just humans? And two, is it possible, and this is where it sounds really outlandish to people, but this is where I play Sasquatch, if, if it exists, is there another kind of a hominin or a hominoid, and this is why we use the term relic hominoid, that could still exist in North America? Now, the proponents of the existence of Sasquatch say, interestingly, we already know in the, in the fossil record of a creature that would be a good qualifier for this, and it's known as Gigantopithecus blackei, which was first discovered uh, as a result of fossil teeth that were found in the Chinese apothecary's shop by... Uh, uh, von Konigswald, I think, was the name of the researcher back in like the 1920s or 30s. And they were being sold as dragon teeth, but he, he's looking at this huge flat tooth, which is obviously used for grinding plant matter. And he's like, that's not a dragon. We know that because <laughs> dragons don't exist. It's a giant ape, you know? And, and many would say Gigantopithecus, if it, if it actually migrated like other varieties, not only humans, but also other different kinds of uh, megafaunal animals, if they had traversed that Bering Land Bridge and populated North America, is it possible that in Pleistocene North America we had a, a megafaunal ape 
along with, now let's just think about how, you know, Pleistocene America looked if we went back 15,000 years. We wouldn't recognize it. We wouldn't recognize the damn place. None of us would know where we were. I mean, you'd have direwolves, saber-toothed cats, American camels, American horses. You would have mastodons. You would have, I mean, any number of other giant sloths. I mean, in incredibly large, monstrous creatures that look more like something out of Jurassic Park than anything that we know to exist anywhere on Earth today. Now, the problem is we don't have fossil remains of Sasquatch in North America, but we do have a creature in parts of, e of Asia that's a good qualifier. And so some have said, is it necessarily impossible that something like that might have come over? But one last point that I'll come back over to, which is more in line with your original question there, Steph. The earliest, some of the earliest human remains that I know of anywhere in North America were also found in the, in the island complex there near Catalina, and this is known as Arlington Springs Man. This would have qualified for being a Clovis-era uh, instance of human remains, um, which even many of my colleagues in archaeology either didn't know about or don't know about until I bring it up to them. Interesting to me that we have some of the earliest instances of human remains in North America right there in that same area. And there are also disputed archaeological discoveries that include what looks like a brow ridge that, I mean, very well likely may have belonged to Homo erectus that was found along the shore of a Mexican lake, I believe in the 70s or 80s. There are similar fossil discoveries like that that cause me to wonder, and I could go on all day about this, but, you know, it, do, do we really have a completely clear picture okay. of the of the hominin entry into North America in terms of the time scales and also the variety of different hominins that might have gotten here. This is a crazy idea in modern archaeology, and people will laugh at you for that. And then in the same breath, they'll say, but tell me about the UFOs. Right. <laughs> very strange to me. Very strange. One hundred. My brain just melted. That's awesome. Thanks, man. That's I hope perfect. I answered the question, Steph. Yes, you did. Mike, <laughs> I'd like to laud not only your encyclopedic knowledge of everything you just recalled ad hoc. That just is incredible. Second of all, I want to say that you were also able to extract the one redeeming quality of the last three years of my Air Force career in Clovis, New Mexico, which oh. was the Blackwater draw site with, oh, yeah. the, with the, uh, the the Neolithic uh, parent, uh, the uh, the arrowheads and stuff. So mm -hmm. thank you. That that was uh, the one thing that uh, right before I retired <laughs> that we could say was awesome about Clovis. The one thing. So yeah. anyway, uh, let me pass it over to Money Nathan. And let me just, as we get a time check here, do we have 30 more minutes with you to hit kind of a quick fire round? Or what, what sure, kind of time yeah. do you have? For you guys, you definitely do. My next appointment oh. isn't until, uh, yeah, we got time. We love awesome. you, Nathan. Just add to that check that you were going to send him. Uh, and cool. also, we're going to, as a result of this, we're going to put me up on the big screen real quick, Nathan. Yeah, okay, hold on one second. All right. There we go. We're going to make sure that you, Micah, have your own can of DJ's bespoke skincare. <laughs> You'll recognize that face on the cover. Mm -hmm. <laughs> as yeah, Nathan, yeah, that... But that is my organic skincare. Nathan will have one of those to give to you. Uh, okay. <laughs> Looks like Nathan doing his very best jail on Heineck. That's it. Nice. <laughs> He gets it. It took me Thanks. like a month to get him to agree to be the, the model for my new skincare. So thank you, Nathan. Um, anyway, we're still working out some it. of the licensing agreements, but uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm in trouble. I'm going to end up writing a check. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> but it's all organic. You'll love it. All right. right. Uh, let me That's pass right. you over to money, Nathan, please. And uh, we'll try to make uh, rapid fire the questions that we have uh, and make sure we can get get everything out in 30 minutes. Go ahead. Sure. Um, Mike, I posed this question to your colleague, Chrissy Newton, when we had her on the show. And and uh, I'd really like to get your perspective on this as well. What what are the kinds of uh, sort of mouthpieces, figureheads, uh, mediators of information in our society who need to be able to either accept or articulate or, or expound upon these kinds of topics in order for the, the sort of tipping point of public opinion to, 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 to where it goes, just as you said, to, from an unacceptable topic of conversation to an acceptable topic of conversation. In your mind, and particularly in the media, you know, what, what are these people, who, who are these organizations, what permission do we need, in other words, to, uh, to have these conversations uh, to make sure I understand the question correctly, are you saying what what kinds of people in, like, for instance, government, sciences, whatever, should be accepting of these topics to help the broader public be accepting? Is that kind of what you're I asking? Think, I think you're onto that, right? So the the issue here is that in our society, right, we have uh, we all have different perspectives, different ideas, but some of them <laughs> are fringe, as you pointed out. And we kind of have to look to the sort of seats of authority uh, for permission sure. to where that's no longer something that's laughed at, but an acceptable topic of conversation. So how close in your mind are we to a place where the, the right people, the right organizations, the right bodies have legitimized these topics so that we can have this conversation more broadly? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> it requires a... A multifaceted approach, first of all, and 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 I have long realized that it wouldn't be enough just to have, um, you know, enthusiasts like me. And I got to be very clear. I mean, I I always try to be a science-minded person, but I am not a qualified scientist. I'm not even qualified per se as a historian, although there you are to great, us. <laughs> well, there are some great there are some great historical writers who are not again people who hold a, a histor a history degree. They aren't a professor of history. It doesn't mean that, you know, for instance, just because you don't have a degree in physics or anthropology or biology that you can't go do science. But all that said, as a, a self-educated, um, you know, you, you, you might call me an autodidact or someone who is just, you know, who's just thirsty for knowledge. I love this stuff and I can speak and I try to speak um, eloquently and, and, and from a position of being well-informed on these topics without sounding like an evangelist. But I realize and have long realized that just because I can talk about it or try to talk about it in that capacity doesn't necessarily do it any favors. The, the best that may come of it, and this is one thing I do take pride in, is that a scientist, if I'm able to employ enough of a scientist's language, may hear me speak about these topics and say, okay, well, this guy isn't out there making crazy claims. He sounds pretty well informed. And I can speak to that point because I know more than he does about anthropology. And so he's done his homework. And so maybe... I'll take a look at it. And this has happened. And I've had scientists, people in, in a variety of different fields, listen to what I'll say. And then they'll say, they'll reach out and say, I enjoy your show. And here's some ideas, kid. You know, they'll help me out. You know, they'll say, here's some things to consider. But, um, and this is humbling for me, they may also say, and you have caused me to think twice about something I would have just laughed at. But now how, here's the question, to your point, Nathan, you know, how do we get that kind of thought you know, propagating uh, more so. 
we already are beginning to see that. But again, it takes more than just people who are interested in the phenomenon. This is one reason that uh, you mentioned Chrissy Newton, my colleague there at the debrief. And one reason that Chrissy and I work very closely together has everything to do with her background in media relations and being a communicator. Um, I might be a good science communicator, but if people don't hear what I say, that's all for naught. But Chrissy has a superpower of getting that out in front of people so that more people hear it and that that message is something that people can find. Chrissy's also, I have to say, in, in, in her own right, remarkable at, at collecting information, um, building relationships with people. And you need people like that who, who can do that. And frankly, people who can work with individuals like me so that we can reach people and that we can present information to a broader demographic. But um, a few years ago, I threw my hat into the ring with an organization called the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. I've never been a member of groups. and I've frankly never liked groups. But what SCU, as it's called, does is very different from other groups that look, for instance, at UAP. They are a group of mostly scientists and professionals who are applying science toward trying to analyze this topic and, and trying to provide reliable information for lawmakers and for others uh, especially with those who are in a capacity to present information in a legislative capacity. I joined that team in the furtherance of exactly what you're talking about. And I brought Chrissy over from uh, the debrief uh, to assist with the efforts right now, currently underway by the SCU to um, help get scientists on our team, more qualified by far than me, but who can speak as well or better than I do about the science aspects of UAP, to get those individuals out in front of the public and informing lawmakers, informing other scientists, informing uh, members of the media about what UAP might represent and what science really can tell us about it. So, so those are kind of, kind of some of the things that folks like Chrissy and I, Alejandro Rojas, and many others uh, do in, in support of an organization like SCU. And to your point, Nathan, I think that we need more groups like SCU that are working to try and to bring to public attention in a real world, scientifically literate way, the reality of these issues. Uh, when it comes to Sasquatch, there isn't a scientific coalition for Sasquatch studies, but there is, again, a, a, an aforementioned group uh, that I mentioned, the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, which is, again, uh, it's I've come to know a lot of the members of that group. Um, and they, many of them are, um, you know, scientists, anthropologists, people with similar backgrounds, some of whom have had firsthand experiences with what, with what they believe are relictominoids, having observed these things. They operate, and this is unfortunate, they've managed to kind of create some controversy as a result of being a, what we would call a pro-kill organization. Um, I don't like that idea. And initially, when I first heard this, there's a group out here who's doing field work and they say we need to kill a Sasquatch. I'm like, well, first of all, if Sasquatch exists, the last thing I think we need to do is be going out and shooting one. As I've come to know a lot of the organization members, though, they don't, they don't like that idea. They're not... They are not doing this for, for fame or for glory. They have a, a system in place where if that opportunity arises, their sole objective is A, to establish once and for all that we have a type specimen. And once it is a recognized species, their intent is to ensure that there is never a chance and opportunity ever again for anyone to kill one. Um, they want protection for these creatures, but like any other biological organism, uh, and this is always the case, a, a, a type specimen is required for it to be deemed scientifically uh, real, you know, for it to be established as a living uh, specimen, a species. 
Um, and in the words of the late anthropologist Grover Krantz, as grisly as that may sound, that's really how science works. And that's what we have to do. So all that said, you know, I have come to in the furtherance of science. And I get it. There are moral dilemmas. There are other implications involved with going. People want to go out there and shoot a Sasquatch. There's a right and a wrong way to do that. And I still don't like the idea. And when I've spoken with members of NAWAC, they'll say, look, none of us want to be the one that pulls the trigger, but we all collectively recognize that that's what has to happen to protect these things, um, which is strange and paradoxical in itself. Lots of paradoxes in these topics. But I think that that's what has to happen. We have to have groups that are willing to take real world, sometimes difficult approaches toward study of these phenomena and 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 there need to be efforts made by individuals to try and legitimize the way these things are discussed and also the people who are looking at them and last point i'll make also this is also part of the the uh the i guess what you might call the mission of the debrief um you know i co-founded the debrief in late 1920 uh not 1920 <laughs> i'm not that old <laughs> in late 2020 with, with tim mcmillan and mj benias uh, you know, when I first came up with what the initial idea for the debrief was for me, I wanted to have essentially a website or a blog that was just devoted to the current developments with UAP. Um, and it was Tim. I, Tim was the first person I went to with that idea. And Tim had kind of said, you know, maybe you should be open with this. I'm not going to tell you how to run your website, but, you know, maybe you should be open to doing other things. And so as we batted the ideas around and then we formalized our relationship as business partners and then brought MJ in, you know, um, Tim had said, you know, let's let's cover a wide range of material because we're doing UFOs no service. If we just become another UFO blog, let's make this a news site that looks at all different kinds of, of topics and bring UFOs into that and report on that as responsibly and, and as reliably as anything else. And I have to say, I, I really credit Tim with with bringing that perspective to this because all the things that we cover at the debrief, we hope to try and do legitimately and with a scientific literacy. And when we talk about UFOs, we treat that just like any other subject. We don't treat it like, wow, this is extraordinary. This is incredible. You know, it's, it's, it's something that is, is very timely. Um, and there's a lot of data about, and people who have been resistant to that and who have said, oh, come on, this is, I don't want to hear about little green men. Look, there's a whole lot more to this topic. And so as journalists, we can do that too. All of these things, part of the collective effort to help destigmatize and to raise the bar on the level of dialogue on these topics. I, I'd like to pick up on that point you had earlier. And I can tell you that it's not in the nature of CAB to ask very challenging questions. It's not really, we're really a very positive thing and we want everybody to have a good time. But I did hear uh, that gentleman, I want to say that you had on from no Norwalk. What's his name? The uh, well, there have been a few of them. Most Just recently we the had other Paul Bowman. Yes, Mr. Bowman. Right. Mm -hmm. So if in the interest of science, we can rationalize shooting and killing a Sasquatch, then if we take the reports of people who have talked about abductions and, and on background, you will hear that there have been some more sinister interactions with humans and the phenomenon that have led to people not coming back uh, for one reason or another. So if we can rationalize shooting and killing a, a, bug, a Bigfoot, then for the phenomenon, which is of a higher intelligence than us, can we rationalize and morally accept them shooting, not shooting, but killing or taking, keeping one of us in furtherance of their science since, they're, since it's, it's analogous to us? And I, I think that's a reasonable question to ask. Mm -hmm. 
that's a very reasonable question, DJ, and um, <laughs> very interesting one as well. Because as humans, <clears throat> you know, we we have evolved to be intellectually, and as a result of our intellect, we have result we we have evolved to be the most formidable species on this planet. Uh, more dangerous predatory animals that, under the right circumstances, can still have us for lunch, are no longer collectively our greatest concern that, you know, we are more far greater a concern, I should say to those species than they are to us. And as a result of that, humans uh, operate with a kind of comfort that we are the top species. We are at the top of the food chain. We don't, most people don't worry about the idea that the kinds of things that we would do in the furtherance of, you know, expanding our taxonomical knowledge of, you know, biology and, and anything else that, that there might be another species that would do that with us or that even currently and has and, and has and, and actually has. is maybe even currently. And, I mean, again, that maybe we can say is somewhat speculative, but um, and, and this is something that's kind of odd. It, it comes over to another paradox of ufology. If we look back at the early days, um, organizations like uh, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP, they were the big dogs before MUFON and before SCU and others. There was another one that was a civilian group called APRO um, that uh, Jim and Coral Lorenzen ran but uh, and did fantastic work too. Uh, but it, it's strange to me that NICAP early on, when they came across reports that involved a sighting of a humanoid, initially they were really, really, really averse to that. And um, there was a Brazilian researcher who uh, was a member of APRO who first brought to the Lorenzen's attention an incident from back in the late 1950s, I think it was 56 or 57 involving a man, Antonio Villaboas. This was one of the first alleged abductions that occurred. And I mean, it was a very, the way he described it, these individuals came down in, in an egg shaped craft, which in some accounts sounded very much like a helicopter, but he was taken on board. His clothing was removed. It was covered up in this kind of jelly, which he speculated sort of later that might've been a, an aphrodisiac. And then a blonde woman came into the room and nature took its course. Um, a lot of people would say that sounds a whole lot more like science fiction than science fact, but uh, it was treated very seriously, but it was kept quiet early on by APRO and researchers who first learned about it because at that time, nobody took abductions seriously. And then throughout the 1970s with other higher profile cases like Travis Walton and others where these individuals did come back and they did tell of a story where they encountered sometimes what looked like humans. Travis Walton described human-like you know, entities, but he also described other things too. And these cases began to really get that ball moving on. Wow, there's not just a phenomenon, but it's interacting with us. They're capturing human beings. Um, of course, this reaches critical mass in the 80s and 90s with the publication of books like Communion by Whitley Strieber and Intruders by Bud Hopkins, and then the sequels to those books. But today, and I have some reservations about you know all of the aforementioned literature and looking at all of it and taking it all at face value, but I do think that there are some very credible instances of purported abductions or captures and 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 uh, you know again we could talk about Betty and Barney Hill and some of the interesting things that happened to them. Um, but in the modern UAP dialogue, isn't it bizarre that people only want to talk about the objects? They don't want to talk about the rich history of sightings of humanoid occupants, sometimes outside of these craft, even if we don't want to get into discussing like abductions. Look at like Lani Zamora and the Socorro, New Mexico incident from 19, was it 64 or was it 67? Again, I'm really doing a great job. Oh, that was 64. 64. Yeah, 64, right. April 6th, April 24th, 21st, April 21st, 1964, I think. So, but anyway, okay. 
point is, point is though, he sees two individuals outside of this, again, for lack of a better term, a tic-tac on kind of a tripod landed out there uh, in an arroyo near Socorro, New Mexico. Okay, if it's too much for you to say that these people are being captured, being examined and all of this, at least acknowledge that there have been human humanoid occup occupants who have been observed in conjunction with landed UFO sightings. You don't hear anything about that in the modern dialogue, people. I mean, yet again, that seems to be like the next step, the next phase of the paradigm. But like we're to the point where we can talk about UFOs and people studying them, our government studying them and collecting data, but we don't want to hear about humanoids yet. And I'm like, this is just so bizarre. Anyway, back to your point. As top dog, we're thinking that we're the top of the food chain on this planet. We seem to be really comfortable with, you know, collecting specimens. We don't like the idea of someone or something doing that to us. But if we really look deeply at the body of data that's been collected by civilian organizations about this phenomenon, um, there is some data that is suggestive of that. And I wonder sometimes if people's aversion to wanting to talk about the humanoid component to wanting to talk about the experiences of experiencers. Is it a fundamental, almost like a, is it almost fear. like an, un, like a, like a subliminal or an unacknowledged fear that they have, right. Of having to reconcile with what if we aren't at the top of the food chain? What if there is something more? And what if these intelligences view us like we would view any other kind of a specimen, right. And that they would be willing to take a specimen when we're applicable. That's that's the, that's my point is Mr. Bowman can can say it's in the interest of science all he wants. It's no more moralistically correct than a, a phenomenon, a phenomenon coming here, taking a human and by whatever happenstance, they never come back. And that's not acceptable to us, nor should it be to shoot a Bigfoot to say, hey, we got one. Here's the DNA. OK, so it exists. Great. Well, uh, yeah. they, they're going to the, 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 the that the higher intelligence would say the same of us. Hey, we had to take one. Got, <laughs> you know, got to take one. Is that OK right. with us? No, that's not OK. And Lou actually has alluded to that. And if you if you speak with the right people and I know you guys do speak with the right people, you'll find out that, that perhaps that those instances have occurred uh, where people uh, have gone missing in this. The supposition is that uh, for that reason and I. If you want to do it and you would say, I want to shoot one, I don't want to, but I'm going to, that's fine. But don't don't try to morally justify it because it's no different than if it happened to me. And Nathan could say, ah, well, you know, they needed to get one. So they took DJ. That's, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> so, anyway, let me pass it to Kevin. <laughs> well, the conversation took a serious turn. I had a banana joke in there somewhere. <laughs> but man, I, I'm not going to even go there now. <laughs> So instead, I had a question about human linguistics. So now, this is something that's been bothering me, and it's something that, like, at work, we've had a debate about. Now, if you have more than one Bigfoot in an area, is it big feet? That's a good question. Yeah, I see people. Um, I, I would say big feet, and you guys notice preferentially, I, I uh, use the expression Sasquatch. For me, that's just a nod to, uh, with respect to indigenous traditional cultures but that sasquatch is a, a, an anglicized version of an Halco, of a halcomalum word i believe they would have pronounced it more like sasquets but nonetheless you know sasquatch is closer than bigfoot right and it's kind of like how you won't hear me saying flying saucer i'll say ufo or uap um, but but that said uh some people do say bigfoot i don't mind that being said um and uh, and when people do say it i would just respectfully ask that they say big feet instead of big foots but some people okay. say 
yeah, when we see Bigfoots out there, and I'm like, that just sounds That's, silly, right? It just sounds silly. Um, no, I'm going to correct them. Right? I, I would say big feet. I mean, but then right. again, some would also say, but Micah, be, you know, remember, you would say mooses. You wouldn't say meese, right? Meese, exactly. <laughs> you would say, right. but then again, again, this just shows how complex uh, language is. And, and it's very apropos that you mentioned this, Kevin, because you would say geese, not gooses, right? So now explain <laughs> this one to me. I can say mooses, not meese, but I say geese, not gooses, right? You guys remember Gallagher, right? The comedian saying, you know, that they go to, they, they take you to school to learn how to communicate, but then they tell you not to talk in class. That's right. right. It, it should be it. either or good mice. food, right? It should be good food or, or, or good food or good food, right? But it's good food, good right? Food. You change one letter and it's just O-O-D, but one is U uh, and one is O. I mean, go yeah. figure. So I say big feet. All right. Mike, no wonder they howl at each mice. other and bang on trees. I mean, that's the easier way to communicate. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Just leave language out of it. <laughs> we've got, we've got uh, 11 minutes left and we have uh, three people to get in. And I'm, I'm going to talk to you about Sierra Sounds and those gentlemen from David Politi's book and Tom Messick and all that. But let, let's get to Steph and let's try to make these rapid fire so we can get, get three questions in, please. Right on. So quick question on your theory of intent. So speaking on these these sexual encounters that have happened with people, auditory type illusions, um, radiation burns, so-called pregnancies, all of these things to me lead to this almost like crossbreeding of them with us. But that can't be the only intent for or purpose for them visiting us. So what would your theory of their intent besides all of that be? with uh, us here on earth um well you know when it comes to uap that's it's it's difficult to uh determine you know the the scu is currently doing an intention study to try and understand what the motives and intention of these phenomena are um i've heard some novel propositions uh, one being that they are um you know scientists and, and actually there are a few you know anecdotal instances where experiencers who claim to have and, th and these are not people who are going out trying to get attention, you know, or trying to write books or, or, or anything. People who very quietly uh, have, you know, called and, 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 you know, you know, called hotlines or spoken to researchers about experiences that disturbed them greatly where they encountered these phenomena and the occupants. They've been told uh, in some regards, you know, we're scientists, we mean no harm, things like that. Again, it sounds very like they, the earth said still type stuff, but um, and, and then someone would ask the question, okay, did they speak to you in English? Did they project their thoughts? How did this happen? Lots of mysteries there, but I mean, there, there is some anecdotal evidence based on what people have described that there's an observational kind of scientific effort. Um, some might say that they're here harvesting resources, you know, minerals, who knows what else. Mm -hmm. Some might say that the ultimate plan is to try and colonize Earth, uh, but that in order to do so, they hope to try and assimilate into our midst by looking like us. Uh, again, you start seeing, and this is what complicates it, um, parallels to science fiction, you know, invasion of the body snatchers, you know, any, any of these. So, but, um, you know, I'm being invaded by a large black fly right now. So, <laughs> but, but as far as their, but as far as their, intention, I mean, I, I, we can only, we can only speculate. We can only speculate. Sure. Money, Absolutely. 100%. Many, many things happening. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, debrief, uh, uh, staff meetings. Um, who's, the, who's the person whose mic you have to cut so you can end the meeting on time? 
that's uh, hmm. It's probably Tim, uh, and 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 that's just because we don't ever almost ever end on time. And there are many cases where after a two hour meeting, everybody leaves, but then Tim and I are just the last ones to close the windows. Like Michael, by the way, you got five minutes and then we'll just start like woodshedding and and discussing stuff like UAP. And then there's another hour and then we'll maybe carry it over onto a phone call so we can walk around and make coffee and stuff. But, you know, and it's, it's pretty obvious that Tim and I, uh, everybody in the debrief, we're almost a lot more like a family than a, a uh, team of people who work together. We, we operate and interact like family and tease each other and have a lot of fun, but we accomplish a lot. And I think that really that's what makes a really great working relationship is people who care about each other and who work well together. Um, but, but yeah, it, it began really with, you know, Tim was a listener of my podcasts and he reached out <laughs> and like a joke the first few times that uh, he emailed me. I mean, I was so busy. I was like, yeah, I'll get back to this guy later. And, you know, and it was one of my anthropology friends who lived in uh, actually the geologist on my seven ages team, James Waldo, who lived in Savannah, Georgia at the time. He said, there's this guy who lives here in town who I've been catching up with and having lunch with. And he's, he's our kind of people. And I said, oh yeah. And he says, yeah, his name's Tim McMillan. You need to meet him, Mike. I'm like, oh, that guy emailed oh, me. Damn it. Yeah. And here we are like five, you know, four years later, three, four years later, I guess. I think it was 2019 when he and I first started talking. So yeah, I guess, you know, three years later or so. And we've got the debrief. And, uh, but, but that friendship really is what it's all still to me built upon. And, and yeah, um, if, if it's not him and we have to cut his mic, it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. I, well, yeah, it, it comes through very clearly. You guys are very, uh, have a very strong collegiality. Uh, you've got each other's backs and the fact that you can keep going like that to me is a sign of, of uh, just a, a really positive uh, energy that, that you're bringing and we all benefit from it. So thank you. I thank you. It, uh, shout out to Chrissy Newton. We've had her on. She was great. And uh, Tim McMillan, I've been chasing about as long as I've been chasing Micah. So we would love to have him on if you can give us an endorsement. Uh, I'm I'm president of his Northwest Florida fan club. Oh, cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've got the North Carolina chapter. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I just – he's just uh, – I like him in the same same way that I like you're you guys are so different, but you're the same in a lot of ways. And you're uh, you, you said that there are people who are more adept at, at speaking on the topic than you. If there are, I haven't heard any. Um, but uh, so I, I love listening to you speak. And I think I share that with the cabbies. Um, so just to listen to you speak for my last question regarding that incident, um, the David Polites uh, missing 411, the hunted. Um, I'd like you to speak, if you could, quickly on two aspects. One, the Tom Messick disappearance in Horicon, New York, whereby uh, this the illusion or the, he alluded to the FBI not investigating missing persons cases that don't involve children. And Tom Messick, uh, if you, so if you hadn't seen it or you hadn't read that, then I'll just skip right on to right on to the Sierras. Are you unfamiliar with that case? I'm not familiar directly with okay. Tom Messick. I am familiar somewhat, okay. though, with the uh, the FBI's involvement in disappearances and their investigations of them with relation to that topic. Yeah. Okay, so I'll I'll leave that alone. But if you watch that one on Amazon Prime, it's the first uh, chapter of that missing four one one, the hunted, mm -hmm. and the fourth chapter is the one that that I'd like you to focus on right now, which is those gentlemen, uh, uh, Mr. Barry and Mr. Moorhead. Uh, out there, the uh, Northern Cal hunters that had some prolific experiences recording Sasquatch and 
then you know him going back up there and seeing what looked like that lightsaber passing through the forest on another trip up there because they've been going up there since 71 for goodness sakes and then of course they had the orb sighting there so i'm wondering if you could just give us your thoughts on that 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 entire uh, uh literally i hate to use the word phenomenal episode well you know it's it's really interesting because in the case of um the Sierra Sounds, the famous recording that the gentleman obtained, um, here, if, if that is what it seems to be and what they claim it is, is um, chatter uh, or possibly language being produced by Sasquatch that they recorded, uh, that is one of the most interesting representations. It's not physical evidence in the sense of what would you know satisfy a, you know, a biologist or a chemist, uh, but it is a recording that gives us and an example of what might be, you know, a, a creature in the environment that's producing sound. The analyses of that audio um, have been undertaken since the 1970s or, or early 80s, at least. And some uh, analyses seem to indicate that they believe that the sounds being made are well outside the range of, of what's capable of humans. So unless uh, Moorhead et al. were capable of reproducing uh, some sound another way, uh, you know, and that they didn't do this themselves or have friends up there, you know, chattering, you know, then then there is something anomalous there. So again, the skeptic would look at it and say, you know, again, you guys haven't brought us a, you know, a hand or you, ha you haven't brought us a foot, you know, a skull, you know, we haven't, there's no DNA. I would look at that and say, again, yeah, sure, we should be cautious, but it's it's good data in terms of uh, a couple of things, how these creatures might behave and also how they might react to humans in their environment in some circumstances, which is kind of paradoxical because the other claims, especially Moorhead, Ron has in more recent years, you know, with his quantum Bigfoot idea, um, he's kind of gotten much more into the sort of paraphysical kind of approach to this. And I, I look at that and say, it's interesting that we have a couple of guys who collected what seems to be maybe good data about a physical reality to these creatures but they don't seem to rec you know, recognize it as being a physical phenomenon. You know, the contradiction there to me is that, you know, at least Mr. Moorhead, who I've never really met, but I've, I've kind of brushed arms with at events and things and seen him at a couple of uh, lectures, uh, you know, events that I've gone to. And I'm familiar with his general premise. He, he's very much sort of in that paraphysical camp. Um, again, I don't claim to know what the ultimate solution to the Sasquatch situation is. Um, you guys can probably tell from this conversation, I do operate more in the flesh and blood kind of paradigm, but I'm always open to possibilities and ideas. The only issue is, is when we say Sasquatch may be interdimensional, I say, okay, and how do we quantify that interdimensional phenomena? If we had a good grasp of interdimensional phenomena and how that boundary between dimensions might be traversed, then we could say, and is Sasquatch one of those, you know, one of those traversers, maybe so, but we haven't proven that yet. So how do we lead with the presumption that Sasquatch can do something that isn't proven yet? Again, to me, yet again, two negatives don't make a positive, And therefore, at least provisionally, at the outset, I continue to look at this phenomena within the context of other kinds of known biology and try to apply my, my approach toward it in the same way I would approach similar biological studies. Yeah, it's it, it's uh that case is I mean I almost get the chills when I watch that that episode. It's just to see the campsite, to mm -hmm. you know even as it is today to see the the great photos that you could tell are from the 1970s. Then to see yeah. David Politis there in the campground with them, speaking with them about it. It, I I think Nathan, did you guys watch it? Did everybody see it? On 
It, it's it's fascinating. Yeah. And you're talking Highly about the documentary Missing 411, The Hunted, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. And, and if I may I'll also just point out that my dear friends Lauren and Cuz Strickland are in that. Lauren is one of my, my dearest friends, my oldest friends, uh, who is also a fantastic researcher in her own right. And she and her uh, father, of course, appear in that uh, documentary. Um, we've talked, and, and Lauren knows, uh, she and her father both know uh, Politis extremely well. And I've met David a few times, very nice guy. Wow. Um, but I will say this, you know, I've, I've looked into some of his uh, research and some of his cases myself, Tim McMillan and I actually, not so much, um, well, we may have something that we'll be publishing through the debrief that actually somewhat falls into the scope of this kind of research in the days ahead, which is not something Tim and I have teamed up together on before, but behind the scenes for years we've been looking at a couple of cases, um, one in particular that uh, occurred in the Cades Cove wilderness out our way, Nathan, uh, which uh, again involved a young boy who vanished back in 1967, Dennis Lloyd Martin. Um, but that story has, I think, a lot of people have tried to kind of view that through the lens of a Sasquatch case. I, you know, and I, I don't want to speak on behalf of David Politis. I think perhaps he does, um, or it has looked at that possibility. But but I will respectfully point out that you know uh, David has tried to to operate outside of the Sasquatch paradigm with his missing 411. Uh, research and and I've heard in interviews sometimes when people just blatantly ask him, David, you think this is Bigfoot? He gets a little irritated at that because he is trying desperately to frame this phenomenon in a way that is objective. He's right. saying, here are the facts, here are the, the correlations that we see. You, you'll notice all these different things, like for instance, a heavy rain moves in after a disappearance. He's, he notes like things like uh, the presence of granite boulders and things like uh, huckleberry plants, you know, where a lot of these disappearances occur. Uh, but he makes late no, afternoon. Yeah. Late and he, afternoon, and all, it seems to. Right. Yeah. Certain times of day, even certain times of year, certain conditions. Again, that strange silence where other animals get silent. That's something. But again, while there are definitely um, claims that are made, and some of them would probably border the extraordinary, David makes no assertions that, guys, it's time to tie it all together. I think that interdimensional Bigfoot are kidnapping kids in our national parks. He never says that. And and, I, and that's something I really respect about David's work. He is trying to be objective, and he's trying just to just present data. And he's written a lot of very interesting books that do look at very obvious real phenomena involving disappearances. And even if we say that that's just psychological, coming back to what Kevin was talking about, you know, let's say that there are things that happen when a person's really dehydrated. I've spoken with people who have vanished and then been uh, discovered, who have been recovered and saved. Haley Zega was a young lady in Arkansas who, when she was just five years old or so, um, she got lost and she spent a couple of days in the forest by herself. That's a conversation for another time, but I interviewed Haley Fortunately, she was saved. She still tells her story to this day. And some of the things that she describes having happened, I think, are very key in understanding some of the missing 411 phenomena. Wow. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what, we're going to we're going to say our goodbyes now. But uh, I will I'll email you and I would love to get your take on the first chapter of that one on Prime and, and Tom Messick, because the inference that, uh, as you said, David is inferring that. This is not a child. This is an 82-year-old man that went missing in Horicon, right. New York, and yet the <laughs> FBI came. And he leaves you with that. And he says, it, the FBI do not investigate. So it leads, could it be a UFO phenomenon? He doesn't lead you down any particular path, but just to provoke thought. And, I, I, and I'll correspond with you on email. I'd love to hear what your, your take is on what maybe your hypothesis of what happened to, 
Tom Messick when you see when they lay it out for you and you hear the interviews. But uh, let's start with Steph with our goodbyes. Well, I just wanted to say thank you for your due diligence and bringing credibility to the subject at the debrief, you know, you and your entire team. I, I truly do appreciate the scientific approach that you guys bring and the research that you guys do place into the subject. So thank you for that. And uh, yeah, I will see you on, on the web on your next venture. Indeed. Thank you, Steph. Great to see you. Yeah. Can you hear me? First of all. <laughs> yeah, we got you loud and clear. <laughs> okay, cool. I just lost connection. So first of all, I'm from, from a teacher. I wanted to say thank you because you're basically a teacher too. This is just every time I watch you, uh, you're you're teaching. You know, you're out there sharing your knowledge with with everybody, and I really appreciate that. Um, so thank you. You're one of a kind, man. I, I was it was honored to uh, it was an honor to talk to you. Thank you, Kevin. Money. Yeah, likewise. Uh, it's been a real pleasure, Mike. I hope we get a chance to uh, uh, to meet up soon in the near the Blue Ridge area. That would be great. Um, and I just want to echo what my colleagues have said, the, the sort of torch that you've lit and that you passed not only through the articles that are happening in the debrief, but through your clear curiosity and passion for these topics, uh, you know, is undoubtedly uh, lighting new fires uh, in, in, in new places. And that's what this is all about. I think, uh, you know, we're only made better by shedding light on, on subjects that seem to be in the shadows, if nothing else, other than to, you know, see what's there, even if it ends up being not, nothing at all. It's better to have light than none. So thank you for, for your efforts there. I appreciate you. And let's definitely have the beer sometime or a coffee, either or, or both. <laughs> <Sounds good. laughs> mix it together that'd be awesome could get um, dangerous yeah <laughs> I, uh, yeah this has to happen are you familiar with exo academia nathan's partner on the other show uh his name is darren exo academia you're not familiar with him mm, i guess not but i suppose i'm going to be yes yeah, sir. he is uh, no, um, go ahead nathan no 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 he's well yeah he's got his own he has a show called point of convergence um, he's working on a couple of books right now, and uh, he's uh, in the UFO community, pretty popular podcast. He, yeah. He's a prolific thinker on the topic like you are, like Nathan is. So this is going to be a great cup of coffee. I'm sorry I won't be there for that. Uh, but one, one thing I did want to say, we talked to our colleague, Steph, about the next UFO symposium. And Nathan and I have offered that we will fly to and go to at our own expense to whatever event you're speaking at, because we want to introduce you onto the stage. We're going to. Oh. OK, so, well, that, you know, that, that may be something you could do. Uh, I don't know what they're, they're planning. I don't want to speak on behalf of the, um, the, the coordinators, but I'm going to be doing an event in Cape Girardeau the first weekend of August that I should mention. And uh, if you go online please. to I think I think it's cape-events.com is the uh, events website. Actually, there's several different events listed there, but the first one is the Midwest Conference on the Unknown Strange Tales 2022. Really looking forward to this. Uh, Ryan Sprague, whom, whom I'm sure you guys know, Ryan's going to be giving the opening keynote on Friday. I'm doing the keynote lecture on Saturday. Um, the title of which is Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, Past, Present, and Future Potentials. We're going to be going deep. And um, I might even have to dig into the X-Files a little on this one. So it's, it's going to be really fun. But uh, if not at that event, um, at some point in the future, I hope you guys uh, will definitely do that. And I tweeted, by the way, if people want to check me out on Twitter, at Micah Hanks, I put a tweet up about that event where you can actually uh, 
see where the website is, you know, and, and, and check all that out. But, um, indeed, I hope our paths cross. Of course, you know, I saw some of you guys there at the event, uh, in Utah earlier this year, Steph and I, we were always going in different directions, barely had a chance to catch up and talk, but I was also on the clock working. So, uh, I hope next Same. time we can all, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yep. It, was, it was quite a, it was a fast paced weekend, but I hope next time we can all get together and maybe catch up, have a drink. It, we will do it. Absolutely. Nathan and I are going to be meeting in New York for a, um, a New York UAP supper club with James Iandoli engaging the phenomenon, Jay King, the experiencer. Uh, so uh, it's going to be, it's going to be a really big, big August, but if we can plan one where I just have a little bit of planning time to get there, we will come, we will get the crowd warmed up and we will introduce Micah Hanks. And that's at, cool. at our expense. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Go to MicahHanks.com. We're talking about Sasquatch Tracks, uh, the Mike, which I love, the Micah Hanks Show. And there's a third podcast, please. Well, there, there, there are actually two others. Uh, one is called okay. the Seven Ages Audio Journal. Um, mm -hmm. That's co-hosted by my friends Jason Pintrail and James Waldo, my uh, Seven Ages Research Associates. Um, I've put on hiatus my news and current events show, Middle Theory. There's just so much going on right now. And as much as I love being engaged in all of the topics and controversies of the day and, and trying to comment on social issues and things, one can only do so much with their time. And I began to realize I'm doing far too little in the UAP sphere, despite doing that almost full time. So I had to make some room and you can guarantee there'll be some additional projects and things you'll be hearing about in the near future. And you are, you are a musician, is that correct? Oh yeah, yeah, guitarist and singer, and I perform yes. regularly with yeah with a group called Nitrograss in the southeast. But uh, anywhere there's a guitar nearby or a microphone, you're likely to see me getting musical. <laughs> I love it. I knew it. Uh, your top four, um, the Mount Rushmore of rock and roll for Micah Hanks is. Who are those top four influential groups? Oh gosh, I mean it would have to be like Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, um, you know, probably Dimebag Daryl of Pantera, the late great, and uh, and also uh, Mr. Mr. Zachary Wild, Ozzy's guitarist, and of course of Black Label uh, Society fame. Now those are all rock influences, but we can go down any genre, and I'll give you those. So. Give me four. All right, so for for part two, we got to hit up, we got to get some more music in there. So thank you so much. It was an honor to speak with you. Namaste, Micah. So for uh, Micah Hanks, for Steph, for Kevin. For Money Nathan, this is DJ and Cab saying peace out, one love. We'll see you down the road. We're always wondering what's up around the bend.